dismissed to go back with Miss Liz. Those of you who are staying with us, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 31. The book of 1 Samuel, chapter 31 this morning. This is the final chapter of 1 Samuel. Now, as we've said many times now, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, there's somewhat of an artificial breaking up of the two. They were never really meant to be broken up. They were broken up for the sake of uh, our, our own modern day Bibles. But so they are one continuous story. And we will continue on in that story in January. However, we will take a short break from it uh, in October, November, and December, and then return to it. However, we are in the final chapter, and then next week we'll actually kind of look back at the entire series as a whole. But we continue on now in 1 Samuel chapter 31. Now there's kind of a saying that has always spoken to me. And it's spoken to me because, uh, if I'm being honest, one of the sins that can really grip my heart uh, is greed. Uh, Not necessarily greed for money, but for greed for things, things that I can want. I can look at the newest gizmo or gadget, the newest Mac this or whatever it may be, and say, wow, wouldn't I be so much happier if I had that? Man, I can, I can just see myself, and I can often sanctify that. I can often think of, wow, if I had this new device, imagine what I could do in using that in my preaching, or what I could do in using that in my Bible study. And so great is, so great is my ability to manipulate my own heart and justify my own sinfulness, right? I suspect many of you are the same way. It's part of what we deal with living in a very consumeristic culture. But I was reminded there was something one, somebody told me one time that's always kind of stuck with me. It's always something I found to, helpful to remember as my heart often lusts for things. And the, the reference was to a boat. And, he said, and this person said, you know, there's the two happiest days when someone buys a boat. The day you bought it and the day you sold it, Right? The day you bought it and the day you sold it. And you could, of course, substitute that for all kinds of a myriad of things. Uh, You could substitute that for an RV or for a lake house or for a golf membership or whatever it may be. There's so many of these things. Now, some of you may have a boat and you may dearly love it. God bless you. Thank you. Uh, Don't forget to invite me to go fishing, right? Because that means I get to use your boat and I have to buy my own. That's the best thing. The best thing isn't having your own boat. It's having somebody you know who has a boat, right? I got off track there. But anyways, um, but that's often the way we look at things. We can look at things and we can crave things, but then we often get them and we realize that this really isn't bringing the satisfaction, the joy or the wonder, the hope that we once, that we just imagine it would. I see this all the time with my kids, right? They'll look at some new, whether it's a video game or a gadget or device, or they can look at it and long for it. They can look at it in Amazon. And and this was especially true uh, when they're much younger and they would have their Christmas lists of things that they would long for. And they could just imagine, oh man, if I just got this for Christmas, imagine how happy I would be. And of course, they were happy for like an hour, right? And you begin to see that. Now, it's easy for me to pick on my kids, but the truth is, as I've said, if I'm being honest, I can see that in my own heart as well. There's something within us that often longs, 
that often imagines that thinks that we can find security, that thinks that we can find our hopes. In our culture, it's often in things because of, a, 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 of our very material consumeristic culture, but really this isn't a new phenomenon. People have often looked and said, hey, I can find a hope in something if we can just get this. And sometimes that's been really big things like new political regimes or new kings or new governments within there, right? If we can just get this new government or if we can just get this new political party in power, then our world will be happy and safe and good. And how has that worked out for us? Right? Not too well. We look at it and sometimes we can become obsessed looking for these alternatives when in reality our hearts are shaped to find their hope and their peace really only in Christ. And is isn't to say that God in His grace and mercy, He has filled this world with good things that we may enjoy, but they become... Um, just that, they're things. They're not ultimate, our ultimate treasures within there. They're things that are gifts from the one who is our ultimate treasure. But our hearts get fixed on these God alternatives. And oftentimes we can get them or achieve this thing that we want, this state, whether it's a thing or a place, a relationship, a job, a house, a bank account that we always thought we had won. In reality, what we find, it becomes quite a disappointment or becomes something we have to hold on to. In the end, it ends up always wreaking havoc in our lives. We may not want to admit it's wreaking havoc, but it does. It wreaks havoc. We've been looking in First Samuel at a couple of characters that have been contrasted. One, of course, is King David, who, as we've seen, has had many faults and flaws of his own. He is far from the perfect ideal king. We've kind of burst that little kind of old Sunday school uh, image of David as, as someone who we want to simply emulate because we find that he's, he himself, if we're setting our, our sights as David as being the one we want to emulate, we set our sights pretty low. He had a pretty, he had a lot of problems. Now, our hope isn't to becoming a person like David, but rather what we see within David is he is one himself who placed his hopes not in being king or in the things of this world, but ultimately in the living God. But this is contrasted to another person, and that has been King Saul. And what we have seen in King Saul has been nothing short of tragic. We've seen this man who's just absolutely dissolved into insecurity. He is dissolved in trying to manipulate and control. He's alienated his family. He's alienated his allies. He's an, and most importantly, he has rebelled consistently against the living God. And his desire and his fixation on getting what he wanted, thinking that if he could just have it and have the peace that comes from that, that he would feel fulfilled and peaceful and secure. But in the end, what it brought is absolute havoc in his life. And we see its tragic, fruitful end here in chapter 31. So we begin in verse 1. It says, Now, 
Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and were slain on Mount Gilboa. Now, we've already kind of gone back, and in the last few chapters, we've seen this kind of back and forth between Saul and David, back and forth. And it's really, it's, it's, it's brilliant, just if you look at it from a literature standpoint, it's absolutely brilliant as, just, as it's brought this drama up to bow. I mean, it's, it's just incredibly engaging as it, as it moves us in and weaves this narrative. It started off with the Philistines gathering, and we were wondering if David was going to have to be part of the Philistine army in attack. And then it breaks to Saul, and Saul despairing at the Philistine army. And so he, he goes to a necromancer, to a medium, to try to, to find hope and to find a message on what he should do. And in the end, he was confronted with Samuel. And this, the prophecy that wasn't a new prophecy, but it was hit home that in that next day that Saul himself would die. And then it switched back to David. And we find that David was, was and that's what we talked about last week. He was, he was relieved from his duties with the Philistines army. And he goes back to Ziklag and he finds that the ancient enemies, the Amalekites, who've, who've been in a pretty important people throughout the book of 1 Samuel, because it was in defying the living God and and not um, taking care of the Amalekites that Saul ultimately lost his kingship. And so during that battle, it zooms back in to we find out while David is fighting the Amalekites, this ancient enemy of Israel, uh, Saul is actually and the people of Israel are fighting the Philistines, the arch enemies of Israel. And what we find is that is going as the Lord God said, quite horribly. Now, if we remember, they're stationed on two kind of mountains within there, right? And so the Israelite army was on the Mount Gilboa, and between the mountain in which the Philistine army was on was called the Jezreel Valley. Now, if they were meeting in the Jezreel Valley, that's quite bad because, as we've learned from earlier on in 1 Samuel, the Philistines actually had quite a bit more um, advanced technology than the Israelites did. In the first, we found that they're the only ones that had uh, iron technology. They were able to make swords within there. But they had another technology that was incredibly devastating, which was the chariots. And now, if you're fighting in the mountains tops, that chariots become neutralized. But if they begin fighting in the valley, then those chariots really uh, give you quite a military edge. Of course, this is all being governed by the providence of God. But we find that... The Philistines are absolutely routing the Israelites. And so we don't even see them in the, in the Israel. They've, they've gone all the way from the mountain in which they had gathered past the Jezreel Valley. And now they're going up as the people of Israel are fleeing on Mount Gilboa. And it says, And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons. And the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. And of course, we don't know much about the the. the, the the later two sons, but of course, Jonathan has served quite prominently throughout this First Samuel series. And we find that just as Samuel had foretold, or prophesied, I should say, the sons have now been killed. And the battle was pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. So as the archers are moving up the mountain. The chariots can't move up, but the archers are moving up. They're, they're, they're able to go out. The infantry hasn't caught up with them yet. What they found is that uh, they've at least in some way wounded Saul 
And so Saul realizes something is about to happen. What we see here is all that God has foretold, all that God has said would come about is in fact happening. And we see now the final rebellion of Saul. Verse 4. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, and I've absolutely uh, written down the wrong number here. Let me start back up here a little bit earlier. And then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it. Lysi's uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But the armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Now, Therefore, Saul took his own sword and he fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died and his three sons and his armor bearer and all of his men in the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled and the Philistines came and lived in them. Now, as we look at this, now, if you've sometimes maybe watched old uh, samurai movies or, uh, or something like that, in the end, to kind of kill yourself in the sign and defeat can be a sign of honor. However, in Hebrew scripture in particular, this is not at all considered a badge of honor. This is not at all considered an honorable death. That would be to actually trust in the living God, to, to, to trust in Him, to not turn away from Him, to move towards Him in repentance. But what you see here in Saul is in many ways a final act of rebellion, a final act of saying, I am going to end this according to my terms and my way. Now, some scholars have said that there's even some sense of his vanity in this, that he's afraid of, of the... the um, the torture, not, not just the torture, but how they would make fun of him from the Philistines and he didn't want to endure the insecurities of that. I think it's pretty clear that he was afraid of the torture within there. I, I can't fully go that way as much as it's easy to beat up on Saul and all of his insecurities. I don't necessarily think that's what's going on here. However, if you look and you do a study of people who have killed themselves in the Bible, it's pretty clear that that's not something that is looked upon favorably within that. This is not something um, that they're saying that Saul was heroic in doing this. He didn't go into a place of repentance. He didn't look and say, God, I've disobeyed you. God, I bow before you. All that is taking place is taking place because of my rebellion. And in fact, the comparison that seems to almost be drawn here is, in fact, with uh, a character who is considered one of the most evil characters in the Old Testament, a, a man from the, by, by in uh, Judges chapter 9 by the name of Abimelech, who tried to declare himself as king, um, and trying to declare himself as king actually tried to attack and take over Israel, but ultimately was killed. There was a, a woman from the, the city of the town that dropped a millstone on his head and he was dying. And he asked uh, one of his other men to kill him so that he wouldn't have the, uh, be known as one who was killed by a, a female. And so there seems to be strong parallels within here saying this is how far and how fallen um, um, Saul has become within there. Now, we pick up and we can see there was actually kind of good reason for him to understand. 
and to believe that they would actually very much abuse his body and torture him. And what we see is a kind of a short reign of evil that takes place, a short celebration of evil in 1 Samuel 31, verse 8. And the next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and they stripped his armor and they sent messengers throughout the Philistines to carry the good news of the house of their idols and of the people. And they put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fashioned his body to the wall of Bethshane. Now, what do we see here? We see a couple of things. First off, when we look at the previously, we see kind of a reversal of so much of what God had been doing. Now, God had called the people of Israel to come in and that he would drive out the inhabitants of Israel, that he would be their king and they would drive them out and they would live in their cities. However, in the rebellious state of Saul, and I'm going to argue in a minute that it was ultimately a rebellious state of the whole people, you see the exact opposite happen. They are fleeing their cities and the Philistines are coming in here. You saw as God's anointed one, David, who had come in, and fought the battle for the people, you saw that he decapitated and humiliated the greatest, uh, the greatest enemy of uh, soldier of the enemy in Goliath. And now you see the exact opposite happening with the Philistines now taking Saul's head and parading him around and declaring the good news, the, the pagan gospel that they had quoted, unquote, defeated, um, that they had kind of defeated Saul. And so that they did is they, they put his body out and they fastened his body into the wall of Bethshan. And the end here is both, it, it's, it's somewhat beautiful, but it's also incredibly tragic. Because what we find in verse 11, it says, And when the habits of Jabeth Gilead heard that the Philistines had done to Saul... All the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and they burned them there. And they came and they took their bones and they buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fastened and fasted seven days. Now, I admit, I didn't realize this until as I was studying this and, and, and read this in the commentaries. And it reminded me, Jabesh Gilead has already served a pretty important role. If we go back to 1 Samuel chapter 11, we're reminded of Saul's greatest hour. And it was when Nahash, the king of the Amorites, had come and had attacked and surrounded the city of Jabesh Gilead, this exact city. And no one would come to their aid. And it was there that Saul, for the first time, steps into the king leadership and he rallies all the people of Israel and he rallies them under the banner of the living God. And he goes and he attacks these Amorites and through the power of God, they are saved. And so the people of Jabesh Gilead, there's, there's this, this beautiful kind of sweet reminder of what Saul had done in the height of his kingship. He had been used by God to rally and save the people. And so now they, and it's a, it, this was certainly a, this was a 13 mile track from where they were to get there. It's certainly very dangerous and very daring what they did. 
And so it, it's very poignant, but it, it brings us back to the height and it makes us say, oh, but Saul, had you not just kept your faith in the living God, had you not just embraced your role, imagine, remember what happened. And it brings us back to his high point, but then it also says that he was buried under a tamarack tree. Now, tamarisk tree. Now, in this tree, this is all also something that's highlighted. It was under this tree where he called for the priest of Nob to come and ultimately had them murdered and killed. So you see kind of references to both Saul's greatest triumph and also his greatest defeat. Very subtly placed there in Saul's end. What do we do with this? What do you do with this? What is this? And it's easy for us to go and move on to the second Samuel and to see how David responds to it. But I think it's important for us to set in this reality, to set in this narrative and to see the very important lessons that this teaches us. And the first lesson that this really teaches us, that we really need to grasp, because it is an important truth that is throughout Bible, in fact, we've even read about it multiple times this morning. It is the fruit of rebellion, rebellion's inevitable end, and that inevitable end is ultimately death. Saul, of course, throughout his kingship, continued to rebel against the word and the authority of God. Now we can look at it and say, hey, what a tragic consequence, what a tragic figure. But in reality, Saul was in many ways a microchasm, an illustration of the people of Israel at whole. How do I know that? Because if we go back to the very first calling and when the people said they wanted a king, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 5, the people have gone to the prophet Samuel and, he, and they said to them, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And so they're looking and they're saying, we don't want King God to be our king. We want to be just like all the nations. And there was a sense of rebellion within there. And God knew it and God saw it. And so in 1 Samuel uh, 8, verse 7, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So in other words, all that Saul was doing was really an, a personal illustration of what the people of Israel were already doing. He was not an illustration of an isolated, lone man who was taking the Israel into a place that they didn't want to go. But he was very much representative of the hearts of the people who themselves had rejected the ways of the Lord. According to all the deeds that they, uh, that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods so that they are also willing doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. What's God saying? He's saying, look, this is a stiff-necked people. They've always been a stiff-necked people. Now, there's something that is remarkable about that because that tells us the grace of the living God. When he saved them, he knew they were a stiff-necked people, that they were a people who would reject the reign of the living God. He knew this beforehand, and yet he saved them and formed them into a people anyways. But he warns them and saying, hey, this is going to show them and warn them the fruit of their rebellion, of rebellion's end, which is ultimately destruction. 
But yet the people wouldn't listen. Listen, verse eight, uh, verse, uh, chapter eight, verse 19. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. What are they looking at? They're saying, if we could be like the other nations, if we could have this king, we'll have someone who will be able to judge us. In other words, bring justice to the land and we'll, have, we'll be able to have someone who will fight our battles for us to make sure that we feel peace against our enemies. Now, what do we look at that? They're looking and saying, hey, we feel this sense, this need for, for justice. We feel this need, this sense for some peace and security, but we're not going to look to God for that. We want to be like all the other nations. That looks more secure. That looks right. Let's find that. But what did they get instead? The fruit of all rebellion. They got a king who, instead of bringing justice, wipes out not only 85 priests in one day, but then goes to their town and wipes out the entire town of priests. Is that justice? Is that fairness? No, that's wickedness. You see right here. Do they have peace and security from their enemies of Israel? From having a king rather than God? No. The Philistines are taking them out. They're going into their cities and they're living within them. That is the fruit. The end of our rebellion against God is always death. It is always, always death. The end result of being like the rest of the nations is enslavement. Now we can look at that and we can see that play itself out in Saul in the Old Testament. But we need to understand that that is still playing itself out in our day and time. As we continue to look to this world to give us these places of peace, to give to the world the places of hope, as we continue to look to this world to find peace and security, the end is none of those things. We may feel good about it for a while, just like with that first day of getting that boat. Wow, this is so good. Look at this boat. This is amazing. Can you imagine what I'm going to be able to do with this? But in the end, we find it disappointing. And ultimately, we find it enslaving. Just as that boat becomes something that rather than frees us up on the weekends to go on the water, it actually becomes a slave to its maintenance, to its care to its ultimate degradation, that it will continue to not only depreciate in value, but to fall apart. Such is the hopes and the dreams and the ends of all the things that we look at in this world. Now we look at so many things in our lives that we look to try to feel that, that place of happiness, just like Israel, to find that place of happiness. Sometimes it just, we look at it, it seems like it's the best way to get us out of trouble. We're in trouble, we're in a mess. Sometimes it's of our own making, sometimes it's not. But what we do as, we, as we, we're dealing with this mess, we can say, oh, well, if I just do this in my own power, that'll get me out of this mess. It'll just be a temporary thing. I'll just do it once. I'll just tell this lie once. I'll lie to my boss once. I'll fudge the books once. I'll do, I'll do this incorrupt thing just once to get myself out of trouble. It becomes a slave. It becomes a web in which we get caught up into. We sometimes we look at this person and we think, man, if I can just keep myself around this person, 
what joy, what happiness. They're such a fun person. And the next thing we know, we are caught up in a web that we can't get out of. Sometimes it's just trying to pursue the life that we think will make us the happiest. We want that American dream. And so we're not necessarily thinking that we're rejecting God within there. But as we are looking at the American dream, our eyes become fixed on that grand house, on that grand bank account, on that boat, on that Lexus, on that Mercedes. Now, if you have any of those things, that's great. Praise the Lord for that. Okay. But if that's your hope is getting those things or your security and being able to keep those things, those material things will rot and corrupt and leave you empty. They won't give you the peace. They won't give the satisfaction, but they will ultimately enslave you to a materialistic desire. You'll want more and you'll want more of it now. The latest entertainment. Oh, man, if I can just have whatever entertainment is out there, if I can fix my eyes for that, that will make me happy because I won't have to think about how hard life is. Or sometimes we just want to escape. If I can just find some way to escape this current pain or escape this current rejection, sometimes that becomes in the the way of fantasies that we find on the Internet. Sometimes that becomes through narcotics through alcohol, through drugs. We look at it and say, this can give us a hope. This can give us an escape. It promises us peace and happiness, but it ends up enslaving us, binding us to itself, promising life, but ultimately bringing forth death and destruction. If we can just manipulate our family, our coworkers, our friends to get what we want, we will have peace. But in the end, it brings death. But there's one other thing that we see, and it's easy because it's subtle, but it's actually incredibly powerfully and very purposely put in there. When we see the destruction of Saul, we don't just see Saul's destruction. We see Jonathan is dead. We see his other two sons are dead. We see Israel is defeated. What's the point? Sin always affects the community. Sin always affects the community. Now, Jonathan's relationship with the Lord, I believe, is secure. I believe 100% in the faith. The Bible illustrates that we see the faith of Jonathan. Jonathan is secure in the living God, right? Uh, I honestly believe that it is very clear. God had a deep and profound love for Jonathan, Right? But the truth is, sin, our sin, always has profound effect on the community. Now, we don't want to think about this because we are so individualistic, we're so autonomous. But if we really just step back, common sense shows us. When I sin, when I uh, follow my own heart's desires, it never just affects me. It has ripple effects with my family. It has ripple effects into my kids. It has ripple effects into the, to my friends and my parents, Right? When I sin, when I become selfish and narcissistic, it doesn't just corrupt me. It doesn't bring me into a place of longing for something that will never fulfill me. But it ultimately turns me in ways against my family. Are they keeping me from getting what I want? Are they helping me? Or I become manipulative towards them to to get what I want. Or in the cases of tragedy, when we see addictions come into place, that never just affects the one who is addicted. It affects the whole family. It affects all their friends as they, as they try to cope with this person who is addicted to alcohol or to drugs. 
You may think that your, your pornography is something that only affects you, but that is a lie from the pit of hell. You may nobody else in the world know that you're doing this in the middle of the night, but yet it is having profound effects on your marriage and on your parenting, on your family, on your relationship, your very relationship with anyone that's the opposite sex. It is having profound implications within there. Science itself is showing that. It is common sense, but yet it is a reality we want to avoid. We say, oh, my sin's just affecting me. No, it is affecting the entire community of people around you. It's pretty bleak. And it's important for us to just step into that, to see it. But the good news is, friends, this isn't where the story ends. Because in this contrast, he's pointing us to a different king. A completely different king. Yes, there's David. But even David is a foretaste, a foreshadow of something that is true and better. A king who would come who is so completely different and opposite in every way, shape, or form. Jesus Christ. And we find whereas Saul was petty, Saul was insecure, Saul was grasping onto him and he rebelled against the living God. We see that Jesus Christ, the eternally begotten Son of God, as we look at, at Paul's characterization of him in First. In, in Philippians chapter 2, he says this, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And he's going to go ahead and explain who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now, that's, we could do an entire series to unpack the theology and the glory and the grandeur of what's going on there. But what's being said is, in other words, this Jesus Christ we took on the form of humanity in the infant Jesus, but long before there was Mary, long before there was Joseph, before there was anything, eternally in the past, there was Jesus, the eternally begotten Son of God. Now, I don't want to get us into a big, rich theology of the Trinity, but what we see is Jesus is eternal with the Father. There is never a time in which Jesus did not exist and equal with the Father in power and in glory. But what do we see? Whereas Saul desperately tried to hold on to some sort of fake prestige, some sort of fake kingdom, the Jesus Christ, the eternally begotten God, is the true sovereign over all of creation, and yet what did he do? Rather than trying to grasp hold of it, in obedience to the Father, he emptied himself. Now, that doesn't mean he, 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 he no longer became God. It means he emptied himself of the glory, the prestige, and he took on human flesh. He was still 100% God and 100% man at the same time. But you see a categorical difference between the way of the true king and the way of our fake kings, of our fake rebellions. It is one of giving, of emptying. And he took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Now think and compare this to, to Saul. Saul, who was constantly trying to hold on to that which was not his. Who was afraid of being killed and being abused by being humiliated. Jesus Christ himself would go out into what the Romans of that time had found was the most perfect way to completely humiliate and degrade a person. To try to strip them of all of their humanity. And he chose it willingly, out of love, to establish a very different kind of kingdom. But the grave couldn't hold him. The grave held Saul. His body was burned. He was broken. His kingdom was a sad end. If Jesus Christ had stayed in the grave, it would have been a sad end, but... Such was his goodness. Such was the perfect atonement for sins for us. That the grave was broken. And we see, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So what we see here is the true king who offers us not death, but life through his death and resurrection. We see a different kind of kingdom, a kingdom in which he brings us into this kingdom, not on the basis of who you are, but on the basis of the greatness of what he has done. He brings us into this kingdom. And in this kingdom, he offers us life, He offers us a love that is beyond anything we could possibly imagine. The security of knowing that the living God loves us so much that he was willing to die to make atonement for our sins. This is the true king. And every knee will bow before him. This is the reality of it, folks. Every knee, you will at one point bow before Jesus Christ. You will recognize his truth of his kingdom. But in his grace and in his mercy, he offers us the ability to be called by him. I should say he calls us in his love. To be his, to be his children, to be part of his kingdom, to know his love and his grace and in his mercy. The Bible teaches us this rebellion that we see in Saul, we are all born into this exact same rebellion. But God came to this kingdom of darkness to break it, to cast out the strong man, to overthrow it and establish his new kingdom. And the question becomes, will you continue to throw your nose and say, no, I will find my happiness, I will find my security, I will find my peace, in the other things of this world. I'll come to church. I'll recognize there is a God, but no, I am going to find my happiness, my security in my job, in my money, in my family, in my health. Or will you find your entirety of your hope in Jesus Christ, which cannot be taken from of you, which will lead into life everlasting, 
All those other false hopes will only lead to death. It promises life, but it will lead ultimately to death. And so this morning I would invite you. Maybe you're a Christian and you need to stop. You need to recognize there are alternative kingdoms that have been creeping up in your life that you need to submit and say, no, they are not my hope. Christ alone is my hope. But you also may be here today. And maybe you're here because you're in a place of brokenness. You may not have Philistines running down you with arrows, but you have tax collectors, you have bills. You have spouses, you have children that are coming at you, and your world has fallen apart. Can I invite you to not look for your hope of getting out of these problems, but rather turning to the king of life who conquered death? You may be here today, and you have no idea why you're here. You were brought by a friend, whatever that may be. But your heart is pricked. You became and you understood and you realized your own need for a Savior, that you have been turning away from the living God and you've been trying to find hopes in other things. Won't you today respond in repentance? What does that mean? It's acknowledging that you have sinned, that you have turned against God. And you'd acknowledge your need for God to save you. And that ultimately when Jesus cried, died on the cross, he took the punishment for your rebellion upon himself. And he offers us new life in his resurrection. Won't you do that today? Joseph, if you and your team would go ahead and come up. We don't typically do this. This isn't typically what we do. But I invite you to just go ahead and take a moment and bow your heads. There's no magic incantation that can save us. It's not saying the right words in a prayer. There's not some action. It's not you saying, okay, God, I'm going to do better. I'm going to fix myself. I'm going to change my ways. But rather, it is you coming to God and saying, I am broken. I am dead. And I need you to save me. And through the work of the Spirit, believing that in Christ, He will save you. That you can trust that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, there's nothing else for you to do to make yourself right with God, but to believe in Jesus' death and His resurrection for your salvation, for your sins, that you can be known and made right and brought into this kingdom of life. Won't you do that today?